Well, if you have a Bible this morning, or if you want to use the one there in front of you in the pew, feel free to open up to John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning. John chapter 5, 1 through 17. Remember, if you have no idea where John is, it's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents or go to the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Look for the big number 5 as we're in chapter 5, and we're going to look at the verses 1 through 17. Next week, we're going to welcome a guest to the pulpit, uh, the Reverend Dr. Tom Hawks, longtime friend of mine. He is actually going to pick up in uh, verse 18 with John. He's going to continue on in our study, and I hope he is a blessing uh, to you, as I know uh, for me, it's been a long time since I've heard that voice, and so I'm looking forward to sitting under his preaching as well, and I hope you will be as well. But we've got some work to do now, verses 1 through 17 in John. And back in 2000, as you're turning there, a little book was published that fell like a little pebble into what seemed like a very calm pond. But those tiny little ripples ended up forming a huge wave that swept through American evangelicalism for several years back in 2000. The book went on to become an international bestseller, topping the New York Times bestseller list and selling 10 million copies it received the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association Gold Medallion Book of the Year Award. That was a big award, or a lot of words there, in 2001. Statistically, many of you probably bought this book when it first came out. I know I did, and it was a huge hit on my college campus. The book I'm referencing is The Prayer of Jabez, written by Bruce Wilkinson. Based off of this little prayer in 1 Chronicles 4.10, it says, Jabez called upon the Lord God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Wilkinson, the author, promised that if you would pray this prayer for 30 days and really believe it, then your spiritual life would take off and God would richly bless you. That sounds a bit like prosperity-ish kind of stuff. You'd be right. Here's what Greg Gilbert from Nine Marks uh, blog said a while ago. He said, there's nothing unbiblical about praying for God's blessing on our lives and ministries. What is unbiblical is that people are treating this prayer in Wilkinson in no way discourages the idea as some kind of magic formula that will somehow hypnotize God into blessing us. He writes as if he has unearthed some long lost secret amulet from the caves of the Old Testament that will unlock God's vault of blessing for us. He says, nothing wrong with praying and asking the Lord to be with you and to help you, but it's not like this magic formula. God is not a genie where you rub the lamp and you say the right thing, and then he does whatever you ask. Another item kind of in this vein that we've seen that's recently come out, you may have seen it or seen it advertised, is the Joel Osteen Inspiration Cube. Thankfully, the other day I saw this on clearance for $7 in Walmart, which is 7 bucks more than it's worth. And so <laughs> this hopefully means that it's quietly going away after a list price of $39.99 when it came out. And it's not even technically a cube if you've looked at it or seen it advertised. It's like somebody took a Rubik's Cube and chopped the corner off and put it on its side, so it's not even technically a cube, but I digress. From the item description, here's what is said about this cube. Be inspired with the Joel Osteen Audio Cube, featuring 365 daily inspirations, 52 sermons, and 31 affirmations. Listen daily while brushing your teeth. Start the morning off right! Exclamation point. Audio Cube comes automatically programmed to play a new daily inspiration, or just press one button to hear your daily inspiration. 
Start your new life now. Daily positive statements to help overcome negative thoughts. Start making positive changes in your life today. Can we think about this this morning? Books, weird-shaped, non-cube cubes. These are all just retail symptoms of a deeper heart problem that we all have. And that problem that we have is we want a quick fix to our problems. Spiritual problems, physical problems, financial problems, whatever it is. So instead of trusting Jesus, we functionally just trust ourselves and try to heal and fix it ourselves. We default to our own work and merit and then just end up sprinkling a little spirituality on it just in case. We basically, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to go with my plan and then I'm just going to sprinkle a little Jesus on it over here just in case. Instead of trusting in what God has given us, His Word, His Holy Spirit, these simple means of grace, we feel like we need to add something to it on our end to like really kick it into gear, that somehow it's lacking this extra little ingredient. And so we look to other voices. But the question I want us to ask this morning as we look at this text and we think about that, what happens when this mindset of, hey, I need to add a little something to it, What happens when this mindset actually comes face-to-face with the biblical Jesus? Okay, what happens when that that occurs? Let's look, let's find out. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps in down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's read verse 18 too, just to add a little bit extra on here. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I hope you're thankful for that. I know I am. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Let's pray. Father, as we have already prayed and asked, we ask and recognize, Lord, that we need healing from you, O Lord. Father, we need to hear a voice outside of ourselves to make sense of our world. And Lord, we're thankful that you've given us that. You've given us your word. May we receive it with gladness and with great humility. Father, speak to our hearts. Change us just in some small way as we have come face to face with you, O Lord. And please, Father, if you see fit, continue to grow and strengthen us this morning. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Hey, two and a half years ago, before I took over as the pastor of this church, I spoke with one of the previous pastors on the phone, as is pretty common to do, and he gave me two books to read as quote-unquote required reading before moving here. Those two books that he asked me to read, number one, Salvation on Sand Mountain, for obvious reasons. The other one, Born Fighting, How the Scots-Irish Shaped America. The first book helped me understand a church background that I was unfamiliar with, plus reminded me again of the dangers of rattlesnakes in close proximity. (laughs) And the second book helped me understand something I already knew, having previously lived in the Appalachian Mountain region of Western North Carolina. Mountain folks are tough and self-reliant. That's what that whole book was about. As many of you know, people in this part of the country would rather die than ask for help. They don't want to be anyone's charity case, and if you do end up helping them, they feel like they need you to pay you back somehow. They can't just accept mercy and help as a gift. Let's be honest this morning. We don't like to receive mercy because it makes us feel like a failure, and we don't like to feel like we're in debt to anyone. We'd rather earn it instead. But the heartbeat of this passage this morning that we look, to look at revolves around how different groups react to this word mercy. How do these different groups react to an act of mercy that's been done? The big question this morning that I want us to ask is, what does this passage teach us about the mercy of God? We're going to see three quick things. The barrier to mercy, the source of mercy, and the effects of mercy. So the barrier, the source, and the effects. Let's look at the first point, the barrier to mercy. Note, this is going to be the longest point. When I get through with this one, two and three are going to be quick. Okay, So just giving you the heads up. Okay, last week we saw the second miracle or sign of Jesus mentioned by John, the healing of the official son, and we're reminded to believe the promises of God revealed to us in his word. Remember we said, believe the word spoken to you. We talked about how crowds were flocking to Jesus because of the signs that he did, not because of who he claimed to be, which is the long-awaited Messiah. They saw him as some sort of carnival sideshow. Here's this guy. Have you heard about this Jesus guy? He's doing all these amazing works. Never never mind the fact that he's actually claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah and the unique Son of God. People were flocking to him because of what he did, not because of who he was or who he is. And we see in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples walk south from Capernaum, but they walk up topographically to Jerusalem for this unnamed feast. We don't know which one it was. There's been some debate and conjecture about this, but what we do realize is that this feast obviously required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so there's this feast day, and we see Jesus and his disciples going up topographically to Jerusalem. And we talked about how, uh, in verse 2, we see that they arrive at the Sheep Gate on the northern end of Jerusalem to a place that actually had two pools side by side with this large covered area supported by five columns or colonnades. And now we see another crowd gathered around another thing that promised healing and change but could never really deliver on its own, which is the Pool of Bethesda, which means the house of outpouring. Remember, we talked about back in Christmas time, Bethlehem, Beth, Lechem, house of bread, when we were looking in the Old Testament. We see Bethesda, so house of outpouring. And this pool was fed by a subterranean spring, and the pool would ripple from time to time, and inevitably someone in the pool at the time would claim to be healed, and news of this quote-unquote miracle spread throughout the countryside. And the ancient Near East uh, Hebrews were fascinated by angelology, 
And so the legend of the pool was born, and the crowds flocked to it looking for a miracle. You'll notice if you have an ESV or an NIV this morning that verse 4 is omitted in your text. But it's included if you have a King James Version. This verse has been omitted because it does not appear in the oldest and more reliable manuscripts. And many commentators see this as a later scribal edition about an angel coming and stirring the waters. As like the scribe was trying to help people understand, why is this guy laying here for 38 years and included this little addition in the text. And so as we remember, we're constantly going back, one of the cries of the Reformation was ad fontes, in the Latin means back to the sources. And so as older manuscripts were uncovered, notice over time that this was probably added later. And so to be faithful, remove that passage, remove that particular verse. But you think, well, can I really trust the Bible if they're doing that? Yes, you can. Okay, these little additions don't really impact, or these omissions don't impact any major doctrinal thought or position. And in many ways, a lot of these little, you'll hear about these little scribal variations, they're so, so tiny that they don't impact the overall thing. So you can still trust your Bible. We can talk about that more if you'd like, but that's why verse 4 is missing. And we see in verse 3 that Jesus and his disciples walk up and see a pretty pathetic sight. They see a multitude, the Greek word here is plethos, where we get the word plethora, which is a large or excessive amount of blind, lame, and paralyzed people all crammed together under the large covered area to avoid the sun while they waited for the water to stir. It's like when, if you've ever noticed, Jesus walks up on this scene, and what you don't really see, I've, I've watched a couple of videos where a guy named Justin Peters is going, and, he's, and also Costi Hen, and talking about these Benny Hen healing crusades and these other healing crusades. What you don't see, what's not on the cameras when you see them on the TV, is the hundreds of people who have arrived in hospital beds and wheelchairs that are always ushered to the back of the arena. These are people who have showed up, many of them, blind, lame, paralyzed, whatever it is, that they're coming to this crusade, this healing crusade, is kind of like this last-ditched effort to be healed. But you never see them, but they're always at the back. Here's what Kent Hughes said about this scene that Jesus and his disciples walk up on. He says, What a pitiful crowd of humanity. Doesn't take much imagination to see those withered, wasted bodies, to smell the stench, to see the filth, and to sense the pathos of the old and young among the impotent, suffering humanity. It had to be a horrible, distressing sight, except for one thing. Jesus was there. Do you remember chapter 4 and the woman at the well that we looked at a few weeks ago? We saw that the true living water was on the scene and everyone missed it because their eyes were focused on the imposter. They're saying, well, what about this well? This is Jacob's well that our fathers gave to us. And Jesus is like, I'm the living water. I'm better than that well. That's just a fake well. I'm the true source. I am the living water that's bubbling up from underneath. As we look at this this morning, we see in verse 5 that John tells us about a man who was obviously paralyzed somehow for 38 years and had come to this pool. And in verse 6, Jesus, who divinely knew this man's situation, similar to the woman at the well, then ask him the huge question, do you want to be healed? And the Greek is hugies, which means do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made whole again? Finally, in verse 7, we see the barrier to mercy. And that is trying to fix it ourselves. 
Here's what Kent Hughes again said. Few things hamper the gracious work of Christ in our lives more than response to this question. Do you want to be healed? Look at verse 7. It says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Kent says, Few things hamper the gracious work of Christ in our lives more than our response to this question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Why? We don't want to accept it. We want to earn it. Or we think we're pretty good people on our own and that we don't need to be made whole or healed. We think, well, I don't nearly need that. That's for everybody else. Or, no, I'd I'd rather work for it. I just don't want to accept it as a gift. I'd rather do something for it. Many of us just retreat back to our default setting instead of just accepting the change that Jesus promises in our lives. How many of us do that? How many of us deep down are afraid that Jesus might actually ask us to change? And so we just punch our church card for the week and carry on as our little own little saviors that don't really need anything. We're actually terrified that God ask, might ask us to change in some way. And so it's easier just to keep him at arm's length to punch our card and go home. But this man knew something that many of us have a hard time with. This man knew that he couldn't do it on his own. But notice, in the shadow of the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, this is just on the north end. This is right outside the Sheep Gate, on the north end of the walled city. Notice who is not mentioned in his plan. God. There's no mention of God's help. There's no mention of the divine at all. He's like, I'm, I'm try- I've been lying here trying to do it myself. We'll get back to verse 8 in a moment, but I want to show you another group that was trying and failing to fix it on their own. Those folks who were failing were the religious folks. Ugh. Let's look at the second half of verse 9 through 13. Look at how this other group responds to this, to what has just happened. It says, the last little bit of verse 9, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. Skip down to verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Think about what has just happened. This guy who has been an invalid, paralyzed, whatever it is, for 38 years has been healed. And instead of rejoicing in that, Look at what the religious folks do, what the Pharisees do. Instead of praising God that this man had been healed, they interrogated him. Why? For carrying up his rolled up mat on the Sabbath. Note, there was no Old Testament provision for carrying a mat on the Sabbath. This is one of the hundreds of extra rules that the Pharisees added to the law of God. This was an extra biblical requirement. They had made themselves the little lords of the Sabbath by adding rules, but little did they know that the true lord of the Sabbath was in their midst, and he was also on the move. In verse 16, they ultimately find out that it was Jesus who healed the man, and they sought to take him out because he was breaking their extra-biblical religious rules. Think about that. Here is the Messiah in their midst who is doing these signs and wonders and has healed this man in a very public fashion, By the word of his power. And instead of rejoicing in the fact that this man has been healed and praise God for that, they're like, but you're breaking a rule. How dare you? Think about that. The contrast that's going on there. 
Now, some of you may have grown up in a church that tacked on a bunch of extra rules you needed to keep to really prove that you were committed and may have even excluded others who didn't make the cut. You may have grown up and missed Jesus and the gospel of grace in the process. God, I'm too busy on trying to keep all these rules, and because I'm trying to keep these rules or exclude others and say, well, you're not keeping the rules, so you're out, and that means I'm in, you may have grown up and missed the gospel. You may have missed Jesus altogether in the process because you were worried about how long your hair was or which version you carried or when you went and all these extra little things that we add on. And the Pharisees were no different from the man lying next to the pool. They were both trying to fix it themselves, and they were both paralyzed. One physically, but both spiritually paralyzed in this moment. The brokenness and lostness were the same. The wrapper was just different. Okay, The outside wrapper was a little different, but the inside heart problem was exactly the same. One was wrapped in beggar's rags. The other were wrapped in religious garb. And the problem that they all had was a sin problem, and they all needed the same solution, Jesus. They needed Jesus. Now, the application for us today, this morning, is the biggest enemy to us truly being made whole is our sinful, fix-it-ourselves hearts. I have that problem. You do, too. Regardless of the wrapper, age, religious pedigree, which mountain we live on, the team colors we wear, family name, personal background, the clothes we wear, all that stuff doesn't matter. We all need Jesus to make us whole again. We need Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't need an extra little book. We don't need a dumb cube. We don't need any amount of effort. No effort that we bring to the table will work. Regardless of the wrapper this morning, we all have a heart problem. And we all need Jesus. Because sin has punched a hole in our hearts. And we need to be made whole again. And we need to hear that question, that piercing question from Jesus. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Let's look at the source of mercy. Second point. Look, at back, look back to verse 9. After what Kent Hughes called Jesus' tenderly aggressive question. I like that. So it was Jesus' tenderly aggressive question. Do you want to be healed? And hearing the man's foolish plan to do it on his own, Jesus responded. And note, Jesus did not shoo him away for being foolish or broken. He spoke to it. And look at what he said in verse 9. And at once the man, well, in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up and take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Just like last week, the, the official, the man needed to believe the words spoken to him by faith. And this man at the pool also had to admit finally that he was fully incapable of doing it on his own. And that's what we need to finally admit this morning too. We're the ones laying next to the well and capable of rescuing ourselves who need to be made whole again by Jesus. Okay? If you put yourself in any other position other than spiritually, you're the one laying next to the pool. You've missed it. That's us. We're the ones paralyzed, laying next to the pool, and we need Jesus to help. The question this morning, and the thing that was just drilling me over the week as I was preparing this, is what are you really looking to for healing in your life? What is the thing that you are looking to to really make you whole? What is the thing that makes you think, if I could only get fill in the blank, then I would be complete? If I could only get whatever that is, 
then finally I'd be complete. Maybe it's a relationship, more money, a promotion, retirement, straight A's, successful, well-behaved children, public recognition, the perfect house, unending comfort, fill in the blank. What is the thing that we say, if I could only get fill in the blank, then finally I would be made whole and everything would be fine? We're all, we all have something. What fake pool are you staring at to make you whole instead of looking to Jesus alone? What is the thing that has your gaze transfixed upon it, waiting for any little movement to happen that maybe this thing will be the thing that finally saves me and finally gives me rest at the heart level? What fake pool are you staring at? It's something. It's always something besides Jesus. What fake pool is stifling your spiritual growth because you're hesitant to turn away from it? What's that thing that you're so afraid of that if you look away from it from just an instant, you might miss it? And so it's keeping you away from Christ. It's keeping you from growing spiritually because you're so focused on that one thing. Do you actually want to be made whole? Or are you just content with lying on your mat because you're afraid that Jesus might actually call you to change and to trust Him by faith? That drilled me this past week. Ugh! Oh, it hurts so bad. I'm preaching myself. Y'all get to listen in. Okay, I've said it before over and over ad nauseum that the gospel is just marginal news for people who think they can do it on their own and just use, it as, use Jesus as a backup plan. Okay, the gospel is just kind of like, eh, news to people who think, well, I can really just do it on my own, and then I'll just use Jesus as the backup plan in case my plan fails. The gospel's never going to make sense to you. But the gospel is the best news for those who truly understand their sin and their need for mercy. And they are able to agree with John Newton on both fronts when he said, Yes, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. When you can admit those two things, I am a great sinner. I'm the one by the pool. I can't fix it on my own. I am dead in my sin and trespasses. Yes, I am a great sinner. We had 20 people up here. That was vow number one. Do you admit that you are a sinner in the sight of God? Do you? They had to say yes in front of all of you. Yes, I admit I'm a great sinner. That's what we said before. The church and the mob, the only two places you have to admit you're bad to get in. Okay? That's question number one. Do you see yourself as a sinner in the sight of God? Do you? I do. And do you also believe and admit that Christ is a great Savior for a bunch of sinners like that. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. If you don't see yourself as this, you're never going to see Jesus as a great Savior. If you don't see your need, you will never see God's provision for you. It'll never make sense. It'll never sparkle like a diamond. It'll just be something that you go, huh, what time's lunch? Okay, the gospel's the best news we could ever hear. And notice, you don't ever get left out of here with group. Here's like 20 things you need to go do and prove yourself so you can come back next week. That is anti-gospel. I don't care how long your hair is and all that stuff. I want you to know Jesus. I want your heart to be changed. I want to grow you. It's the heart of the pastor. I love you. I want to see you love Jesus more. I want you to understand and wrestle with the gospel. Are you able to admit to both of these statements this morning that, yes, I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Look to Christ by faith. 
the true source of mercy. Leave that fake pool and rest in Christ alone. Stop staring at this thing that will never save you. You cannot take it with you. It has no power over the grave. But yet you're so worried about it that you're waiting for it to ripple just a little bit so you can jump in and chase it. It's always going to fail you. The money, the promotion, whatever it is, it's always going to let you down. It will never be able to supply for you beyond the grave. You just have to admit it. When you get to that point to say, all I have is Christ. How many songs do we sing about that? All I have is Jesus. When that hits in your heart, it changes absolutely everything. Now, does that mean that money and promotion and all that stuff, is that bad on its own? No, but when you take that good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, you're worshiping it instead of Jesus. You're looking to that for your salvation, just like the people who are waiting for the pool. They're looking for that for salvation when Jesus is right there. It's sneaky, isn't it? It's sneaky. It's the paradox of the Christian faith that the way up is the way down. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and show grace to those who don't deserve it. Here's what Luke chapter 4 verse 18 said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Guess who said that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Once this gets into your bones that I'm a great sinner, but he's a great savior, once that gets into your bones, it changes absolutely everything, and you never see the world the same way again. It changes you. That's our third point. Quickly, the effects of mercy. Okay, the barrier to mercy, the true source of mercy, now the effects of mercy. In many ways, this side of heaven, the church resembles a multitude of invalids gathered around a pool. A bunch of messed up, broken people. But ours is filled with living water, not fake water, living water. Changes absolutely everything. This is why we gather together on the Lord's Day, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord with joy and hope in our hearts because we realize that we're great sinners and He's a great Savior. In the world's eyes, this gathering this morning looks like a gathering of weaklings. Oh, you religious people, you just need a crutch. Why don't y'all toughen up? To the world's eyes, this looks absolutely foolish. What do you mean you're giving up critical hours in the morning of a Sunday when you could be resting to get together and hear about this fake God? You're a bunch of weaklings. In the world's eyes, that's what it looks like, and they scoff at you. But in the eyes of heaven, this is a gathering of redeemed saints. This is his bride. Jesus promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church because he loves his church. Let the world scorn and scoff. This is a gathering of redeemed saints who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And, they, and he loves them. And their name is upon them. And he has promised to walk with them always, even to the end of the age. That's true. You can take that to the bank, ladies and gentlemen. You can take it all the way to the bank. It's amazing when you think about it. Jesus' withering response to the Pharisees in verse 17 is our great hope. Remember, they come up and say, you know, who do you think you are? And he, look at what he says in verse 17. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. That is the greatest hope we could have. This withering response, he says, guess what? Father and I are working, and we're together. We're going to talk about that next week. I am he, and he is I. You know, we're going to talk about the authority of the Son. That is our great hope, that God is at work. Jesus is on the move, changing hearts. Full front, 
taking vows, not a little bit ago, through the midst of a weird COVID year where everything was crazy, and look at what God has done. We don't say, oh, look at us, we're so awesome. We say, thank you, Jesus, how would this ever happen apart from you? May our churches continue to grow. This is why we gather. This is what we do. We really, truly believe that our Father is working and that Jesus is working. God's at work. Remember, we remember that He sought us out when we were helpless and unable to save ourselves. We don't cling to our list of spiritual achievements. We cling to the cross of Christ and we trust in His merit, not our own. By faith, we bring our mess, our sin, our brokenness to Him and find mercy and grace. By faith, we stop hiding behind our tattered self-righteousness and start resting in Jesus' righteousness imputed, given to us by faith alone. We stop looking to ourselves and we start looking to Christ. Almost done. Psalm 107, verses 17 to 22. says, Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from from their distress, and he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Here's what the Gospel Transformation Study Bible said. Though Jesus cares about our whole being, this man's greatest need was not healed legs but a redeemed heart. When Jesus pursued him and spoke the word sin no more, he wasn't calling him to sinless perfection, but to live in response to the mercy of a perfect Savior. The entire Christian life is a life of growing in grace. Though we are perfectly forgiven, we await the perfection of eternity with Christ. And yet as those swept up into and toward the latter-day kingdom of God, we are called to sin no more, to live out our new radically transformed identity. The effects of mercy like this is a life of humility, a life of joy, a life of generosity, a life of thankfulness while resting under the shade of God's love and grace. We're sinners by the pool, are we not? Yes. But we're also under the shade of His love. Cared for, His eyes upon us all the days of our lives, and that's good news. And the question this morning, the big question this morning, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Mercy springs from Him alone. We sang it earlier. It's true. Look to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your mercy. This undeserved mercy that You have shown us. Your grace that just blows us away, O Lord. You have been so kind. You've been so gracious, so loving. Lord, help us to admit this morning, maybe even for the first time, that yes... I am a great sinner, but you, O Christ, are a great Savior. And help us, O Lord, by your Spirit. Give us wisdom, give us courage. Take our eyes off of the fake pool that we have been staring at, that we think this thing, this thing finally might be the thing that fixes my life. And forgive us, O Lord, for trying to do it on our own. Father, take our eyes off of this fake pool and help us to stare at you, O Lord. Help us to trust in you, the living water that will never fail. And Father, by your grace, draw us more and more to you. Help us to live out this new identity that we are redeemed saints of the Lord if we are found in Christ. I pray that if anyone is here that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, you would change their heart and draw them to yourself, that they would know and hear your voice as the Good Shepherd, maybe for the first time this morning. May it be so. I can't do it. We need you to do it.
So, Lord, change our hearts. Help us to love you all the more day by day. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.